Out of the many defunct Hollywood promotional strategies of the past ages that I personally find the most quaint and interesting is the Roadshow release. For the silent era to the late 1960s, American film studios would try to generate good word of mouth for their biggest and most expensive projects by initially releasing them in a limited number of opulent theaters in major cities. Straining to make the film feel like an event that one simply can't miss out on, they'd try to mimic the atmosphere of a live theater production in ways that I find kind of sad, by printing souvenir programs, holding an intermission after Act 1, occasionally having the actors from the film introduce the movie beforehand and or perform a bit afterwards, and naturally, they charge extra for admission. The more common, vulgar elements of cinema, like newsreels, cartoons, and short films, were excised. Roadshows were often used as an informal focus group to vet a film's commercial potential. Audience members were frequently asked to provide written feedback on cards, and we've covered a few movies on this podcast that were significantly re-edited during the Roadshow release. The first Roadshow release was arguably for Sarah Bernhardt's 1912 period drama uh, Les Amours uh, de la Reine Elizabeth, with a peak during the golden age of Hollywood. Changing taste and declining theater attendance in the 1950s put the format on life support, and by the 1970s, most movie theaters were not grandiose enough to host a faux Broadway premiere. While limited releases in arthouse theaters continue to be a strategy for testing out Oscar bait to this day, the final nail in the roadshow coffin was Paramount's decision to release The Godfather in every district of the country simultaneously in 1972. Jaws followed suit to even greater success a few years later, and once Star Wars blew up soon after that, the strategy of the prestigious roadshow followed by gradual rollout was completely uh, retired. That being said, a lot of famous movies used the roadshow model. Naturally, it didn't always connect. Fantasia is an infamous example, but dozens of films used the roadshow to convince theater patrons that they were a big deal. The biggest success story for the roadshow format by far is Gone with the Wind, but perhaps due to the idiom's dead to lie theater, musicals were usually screened in this fashion. Meet Me in St. Louis, the most profitable MGM release of the golden age of Hollywood that's not called Gone with the Wind, is a clear example of this. So we're going to be talking about that here in a number of facets. My name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive. All right, joining me on this one, you know who my co-host is, if you're a regular listener. It's That's Selvin. right, it's Toby. <laughs> yeah, Toby's all about the Judy Garland. Now, Meet Me in St. Louis is one of your favorite Garland films, but we did a whole bunch before here. So I've come around to Meet Me in St. Louis kind of recently. It was not initially one of my favorites, but it is in most Judy Garland fanatics' top three, at least, I'd say. For me, it's probably in my top five. Initially, I thought it was weird and off-putting and very slow-paced. And then over time, I, I just kept watching it more. And it's one of the most important movies of Judy Garland's career and was important to her personal life and one of Vincent Minnelli's most important movies of his career. So, you know, it comes up a lot in my reading. And I just got to appreciate more of it and having it properly contextualized, like in the development of the movie musical and in the development of Technicolor movies, too, was kind of important, so... On the uh, podcast episode for uh, Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, I said that uh, it was very obvious watching this movie that it was directed by an actor because there's so many facial close-ups and so many reaction shots and so much emphasis on body language and framing the actors in a way that makes people notice their performances. And in that vein, Meet Me in St. Louis was directed by a set dresser. Yes. <laughs> 
Vincent Minnelli started out actually in retail doing displays for a department store and then he started working on Broadway doing set design and always loved decor and felt that the sets were really important for conveying characterization and mood so that followed to working on uh, the MGM movies that he did. And we'll be examining that more, but first, plot recap. All right, uh, Meet Me in... Such as it is. Meet Me in St. Louis takes place in the backdrop of the year preceding the 1904 Louisiana Purchase Exposition World's Fair. I also learned, something that this film doesn't comment on, that the third Olympics were held in St. Louis at the exact same time. Teddy Roosevelt pushed for uh, America to host the third Olympics, and it wound up in St. Louis, and they got into conflicts with the World's Fair, but they decided to have it at the same time, and it was an utter fucking disaster. Because of the Russo-Japanese War, pretty much nobody outside of North America could travel to compete in the Olympics. So nobody came, nobody watched, the athletes went to their grave without anybody noticing that they were competing in the Olympics, and they almost canceled the Olympics. Uh, Yes, sports. Very sad for sports. (laughs) I care deeply about sports as a queer person. Anyway, Vincent Minnelli. In the summer of 1903, the Smith family are leading a comfortable upper-middle-class life in St. Louis. Alonzo Smith and his wife, Anna, have four daughters, Rose, Esther, uh, Agnes, and Tootie, with a son, Lon Jr. Esther, the second oldest daughter, is the Wikipedia recap says in love with, but I'd rather go with infatuated with, the boy next door who she hasn't spoken with yet, John Truitt. That's not cynical. Anyway. It's accurate. Uh, You know how teenagers fall in love. I know, I was one myself. But yeah, he doesn't notice her at first. There's a big thing where she and her older sister Rose go out into the porch and try to talk idly about the, the nice summer day in order for him to notice her, and he doesn't. He's too in love with his pipe. Meanwhile, the youngest Kalan Tootie is riding with the Iceman, Mr. Neely, and debates whether St. Louis is the nation's greatest city. Tootie thinks it is. Also, Tootie's got a case of the morbs. Yes, Tootie, her defining characteristic is the creepy little girl obsession with death. Meanwhile, Rose, the eldest daughter, hopes in vain to receive a marriage proposal from Warren Sheffield, who's studying in um, New York, which is apparently where Yale is. I wonder if that's explained, actually, in the stories Meet Me in St. Louis is based on. There must be a reason he makes the phone call from New York. Well, I'm not an expert on uh, the Edwardian Age or uh, Gilded Age America, so maybe Connecticut didn't have any phones in 1903 and he had to drive to New York. We know that it's a big deal that that he's making a long-distance phone call. Like, that's something that everybody gets all excited over because phones are tricky to use and not very common and very expensive. So everyone in the family, except for the dad, conspires to have dinner early in order so that she can have the phone call privately, but it doesn't work out because dad gets involved. And so everyone's listening in when they have their awkward phone call where they can't hear each other and he's mostly just asking like how you doing what i'm fine how are things over there is it hot where you are esther finally meets john properly when he is a guest at the smith's party and he expresses hope to meet her again on a trolley ride to the construction site at the world's fair but uh before then they slowly put out the lights at the family party one by one and awkwardly flirt like teenagers 
Yeah, it's one of the, if you're watching this the way I did initially, one of the most boring scenes in the movie. And then if you start really thinking and appreciating like how difficult it was to shoot that, it's a continuous shot with all of this different type of lighting going on throughout it. The cameraman and the lighting guys had a real tough time with it because it required so many changes in lights throughout the different rooms that they eventually ran out of proper lighting equipment and had to start just MacGyvering shit together and doing stuff with Venetian blinds and everything. If you start looking out for them, Meet Me in St. Louis has a lot of tracking shots, and none of them are hardcore Orson Welles, I'm waving my dick around fancy pants tracking shots. It's more of a Spielberg wanner. But still, like, yeah, the, the scene where they're putting the lights out is very well choreographed and very well choreographed in a way that keeps you from noticing it. Judy Garland was famously very reluctant to be cast in this movie. We can talk about that a little bit more later. But one of the things that she kept running into, because Vincent Minnelli was such a, a new style of director to work with at MGM, nobody had done things quite like him, even though she was an old pro and had made plenty of movies by this point. She couldn't understand his thought process and had to be reassured by other actors. Like, he knows what he's doing. Just, it'll be worth it. Just go with it. Because they rehearsed a lot of teeny tiny details to like no end and it was driving her crazy because of how meticulous in particular he was. John and Esther meet again on the trolley the following day to see the fairgrounds that they are building the world's fair on. It's on a swamp. <laughs> yes, that song. On Halloween, Tootie and Agnes are attending a children's bonfire because this is several decades before trick-or-treating becomes a thing. If you uh, listen to our podcast on uh, The Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, we go into how all of those traditions that we kind of see as ironclad are fairly recent and all came together pretty much within like a five to ten year period. But we're not there yet. This is kids rampaging around playing pranks. And uh, later we thought that if we threw candy at them, they wouldn't do that. Uh, later, after Tootie appears with a split lip and a lost tooth, she claims that John tried to kill her and that he just flat out attacked her. Esther angrily confronts John, physically attacking and scolding him as a bully. After Esther returns, Tootie and Agnes confess the truth, that John was trying to protect them from the police after a dangerous prank went wrong. They put a fake dead body on a trolley track. And it's not quite a confession. Agnes is filling uh, Tootie in on everything that Tootie missed because John was trying to keep her from getting nabbed by the police. Agnes slipped away, so she got to watch all of the mayhem unfold afterwards. And they are completely ignoring Esther and her attempts to get the full story out of them. Just want to talk about all of the morbid, creepy little girl shit that they did. Upon learning the truth, Estria races back to apologize to John, and they share their first kiss. Also, he was kind of into getting beat up by a girl. Yeah, well, let's not kink shame John Truitt. As all this unfolds, Mr. Smith announces that he is to be sent to New York City on business, and that they will all move there after Christmas. He got a big promotion. The family is devastated by the news, much to Dad's chagrin, especially Rose and Esther, whose romances, friendships, and educational plans are threatened. Esther is also aghast because they will miss the World's Fair. And although Mrs. Smith is also upset, she reconciles with her husband and they sing a tender duet at the piano. And after that, the family comes down and they all kind of sweeten to the idea, or at least get the idea that they should do a stiff upper lip and for the benefit of their dad, who's long-suffering and does so much for them. And is always left out of their intrigues. <laughs> 
Yeah, he never knows shit. Uh, an elegant ball takes place on Christmas Eve. John cannot take Esther because he was too late to pick up a tuxedo. It got locked in the tailor's office. Esther is relieved, however, when her grandfather offers to take her to the ball instead. At the ball, Esther and Rose plot to ruin the evening of Warren's date, Lucille Ballard, by uh, filling her dance card with utter losers. They are then surprised to find that Lucille is warm, friendly, and not a snobby eastern girl like they assumed. She suggests that Warren should be with Rose, allowing her to be with Lon. Esther switches her dance card with Lucille's and takes the clumsy and awkward partners. After being shamed into it by Grandpa. Yeah, Grandpa's a good man, and you know what? She deserved it. She was being petty. Uh, after being rescued by Grandpa after, like, a whole bunch of terrible dances, Esther is overjoyed when John appears in a tuxedo behind the Christmas tree. It's a really nice move. Esther is whisked behind the tree by Grandpa and comes out the other side with John. Yeah, Grandpa's in on it. Sweet. Grandpa, unlike Dad, knows all the intrigues. I mean, he's home all day. (laughs) Later, John proposes to Esther, and she accepts, but their future is uncertain because they still must move to New York after Christmas. Esther returns home to find Tootie waiting impatiently for Santa Claus and worrying about whether she can bring all her toys with her to New York. After Esther sings Tootie a poignant rendition of Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, an inconsolable Tootie destroys the snowmen that they must leave behind in St. Louis. Because if she can't bring them with her to New York, she'd rather kill them. Tootie's got the morbs. Uh, Esther reassures Tootie that the family will remain together no matter where they go, and that they can find a way to be happy in any circumstance. Mr. Smith, who has witnessed the girls downstairs and is now tearful, has second thoughts. Uh, He brings the family to the living room downstairs and announces that he will not move to New York, no matter how they hem and haw about it, and that brings about everyone's surprise and joy. Warren rushes into the Smith home at this point, declares his love for Rose, and announces that they will marry at the first possible opportunity, spurring Dad to ask who the hell that is. (laughs) And uh, Mom tells him not to worry about it. She's got it. Tootie emotionally blackmails everybody into opening the Christmas presents early, and the Smiths celebrate. Uh, Later on, at the World's Fair, the family gathers overlooking the Grand Lagoon, just as thousands of lights around the Grand Pavilion are illuminated, and that is the end of the film. Okay, Meet Me in St. Louis is based upon a series of short, sentimental family anecdotes written by Sally Benson and published in The New Yorker. In 1942, they were collected and revised to form the novel Meet Me in St. Louis. The biggest change being that Benson added four more stories to the original eight and therefore was able to restructure the narrative as a sort of year-in-the-life kind of deal. Arthur Freed snapped up the film rights instantly. In fact, the title Meet Me in St. Louis was determined for the film and then retroactively applied to the story collection. Yeah, I think they were originally just called, like, Kensington Avenue. Yeah, something like that. 3135 Kensington Avenue. Yeah, there were some uh, liberties taken. For instance, uh, Benson confessed that the family never returned for the World's Fair in real life. They just stayed in New York. Yeah, so a couple of things I found out while preparing for this. Meet Me in St. Louis was a huge success. Like you said, it was one of the highest grossing films for MGM. They therefore wanted to make a sequel. First, they considered making it a series, like the Andy Hardy films, but more expensive. And they were planning on calling the sequel Meet Me in New York. Uh, I read Meet Me in Manhattan. Ah. (laughs) Well, from what I heard, it never exited the development stage. 
But yeah, in addition to the $25,000 fee, Benson was present in the writer's room and had a say in how the film was structured. The other thing that I was thinking of, too, was there were, I think, four different scripts, at least, that went through development and they kept running into problems because, as I alluded to earlier, the short stories, they're slice-of-life, day-in-the-life things comparable to the Andy Hardy series. There's very little plot. So people were struggling with how to turn that into a pretty decently budgeted Technicolor extravaganza. Being a Technicolor film at this point was still really a big deal for uh, MGM. And they ran through like all of these ridiculous ideas first to try to give the movie like some connective drama, including a plot line where Esther was going to be taken hostage. Yeah, early treatments were by the husband and wife team of Victor Heeman and Sarah Mason. They wanted to introduce a blackmail subplot that Benson disliked. So romance Nobody liked that one, yeah. So romance novelist William Ludwig was brought in to flesh out a courtship story focusing on the two eldest daughters and their romantic problems. Uh, at this point, set and costume designer Vincent Minnelli was hired to direct. Benson was interviewed extensively by Minnelli, and she was pleasantly thrilled and shocked to arrive on a set that recreated her childhood memories in exhaustive detail. Uh, according to Mary Astor, the only set design and anachronism that she could think of was uh, the girl's hair. According to her, as she put it, young girls of that era would fight their parents to put their hair up the instant they reached adolescence, like as soon as they were out of pigtails. Some other people pointed out that Esther's tennis costume was a little ribald by the standards of 1903. <laughs> that that could also be explained by Garland and Minnelli's flirtation going on, too. He definitely wanted her to feel glamorous by the standards of their day. Judy Garland signed on while Ludwig was completing his draft. Uh, as Sylvan already put it, she was extremely reluctant to accept the role of yet another teenage girl next door since she was 21 and fearful of being typecast. She even had her mother petition MGM chief Louis B. Mayer on her behalf. Uh, Minnelli interceded and ultimately convinced her to take the part, however. Yeah, I've bumped into two different versions of why people think she was reluctant to be cast in the movie. The, the one that you alluded to is the one that I take the side of, definitely, which is she'd been playing homely girl next doors that people weren't romantically attracted to, and it definitely started messing with her head. Like, she liked the idea of being a pretty leading lady, and she'd gotten to do a couple of movies now where she had been able to be seen as an adult leading lady. So Meet Me in St. Louis felt like a step back to her co-starring with Mickey Rooney days. That makes perfect sense to me. And she was pleasantly surprised to find that she wasn't being framed as a plain Jane girl next door, but got to be romantic and beautiful in this. Um, the other explanation I saw was, uh, or I heard, was um, supposedly she was worried about being upstaged by Margaret O'Brien. And that makes very little sense to me because... She tended to get more concerned about actresses who were the same age and stature as her, not about children. She was protective of children. We'll get and to that. By all accounts, she she loved working with Margaret O'Brien and thought she was a doll. Um, she didn't like working with Lu Lucille Bremer, though. We'll be getting to that. Garland did, however, feel that Ludwig's script was undercooked and that her character in particular was too juvenile. Fried agreed with Garland and had uh, Irving Brescher and Fred F. Finkelhoff do some punch-ups. They are the only credited writers uh, on the final film. 
Their main contribution was the subplot about the move to New York, so they added all of the dramatic tension. Yep, it, it took a long time to figure out how to make these anecdotal slice-of-life stories have dramatic tension. Freed was satisfied with this script. It is the final version, but Garland wasn't. She was overruled, however. Garland did eventually warm up to the story, though. She would later claim that Meet Me in St. Louis is one of her favorite projects in retrospective interviews. This was, of course, well after Meet Me in St. Louis became a beloved and lucrative holiday perennial. I've bumped into two sources now where Liza Minnelli says that it's her favorite of her parents' movies. Um, it is the one where they got to know each other real well and fell in love. So in one of the things that I read, she said, you know, I wouldn't exist without Meet Me in St. Louis. I thought that was rather sweet. Yeah, I read Minnelli pointing out that there are so many scenes where uh, Garland is framed with drapes or subtle mood lighting, and yeah, she sees it as her father putting a loving gaze upon her mother. It definitely comes across. Like, an another thing I read in regards to that, too, is this is the first movie where Dottie Ponadel does Judy Garland's makeup, and she continued to have Dottie Ponadel do her makeup afterwards because not only was she incredibly talented, but they became very fast friends and Dottie stood up for her and helped her with her self-esteem. MGM did spend all of her teenage years making her feel really ugly. She had to wear discs in her nose to turn her nostrils up. Um, she had to wear coverings over her teeth. They um, ripped on her for her weight, for her posture. And Dottie actually like took the discs out and, and meet me in St. Louis. She's not wearing the like false things over her teeth. It's her actual teeth. And Ponadel said like you know you're a beautiful girl we we just need to work with your your features as they are so that that had to feel good after so many years of being told actually no you're you're pretty hideous but you got a nice voice uh, child actress margaret o'brien was a rising star at the time prompting her parents and agent to start strong-arming mgm over her fee mgm tried to play hardball by casting an electrician's inexperienced daughter as tootie up to and including moments where they started fitting the kid with her with costumes o'brien's mother refused to cave in and mgm conceded to her demands yeah i've read a, a couple of interviews where margaret o'brien talks about that anecdote and how they they you know definitely broke that family's heart because they were all excited about the kid getting cast Speaking of which, on set, the electrician tried to kill O'Brien by intentionally dropping a heavy lighting instrument on her. This was a near miss, and the electrician was immediately arrested and institutionalized. I definitely did bump into some version of that, but it was definitely made out to be less dramatic. That is an interesting thing about reading about these old Hollywood movies. I can tell you like nine different versions of the same story with varying levels of drama and flair to it, and they all come from like eyewitness sources, so... Minnelli was deeply impressed with O'Brien's professionalism on set. He did, however, in retrospective interviews, claim that he struggled with the scene where Tootie angrily knocks the snowmen down. Apparently, according to Minnelli, she and her mother worked out a little method acting game where the mother would tell Margaret that she was going to kill the family dog and that would make Margaret get emotional. Apparently for the snowman scene, Margaret wanted Minnelli to provide the dog-killing announcement. And holy shit, did he not want to do that. He was pleased that she nailed the scene in one take and merrily skipped off to her trailer the instant he said cut. O'Brien, however, later claimed that this story was fabricated while promoting the film. She said that the real reason that she was good at crying on set was because she was competing with fellow child actor June Allison over who could be the best crier in movies. 
She is pretty good at that. Another story I read was, um, you know, mostly very professional um, beyond her years and all that. But um, during the dinner sequence, which was one of the more intricate and fussy uh, shots in the film and had to be rehearsed to death, she was enjoying pranking the prop master by moving the silverware around, thus destroying takes, because then, you know, it is somebody's job to watch for the continuity of where items are placed when people are eating, and he was dri- it was driving him bananas. You know, also, she outranks him, so he just has to grit his teeth and take it. Uh, Meet Me in St. Louis was delayed up to the precipice of cancellation several times during production. There were issues with Technicolor, or Technicolor was backed up and uh, couldn't take on the colorizing jobs for a while. Also, there was some minor studio stuff. But the main thing getting in the way was Joseph L. Mankiewicz. And see, he was in preliminary uh, sketches for what would eventually become the pirate, and he was, you know, sleeping with Garland at the time. But uh, this was resolved when Mankiewicz left MGM for Fox, and then Meet Me in St. Louis just had a clear path. Uh, it did get a bunch of delays, though, because people kept getting sick, and I think it was um, the actress who played Agnes ended up having to have an appendix removed while they were making it. Oh, yes, but this is before. Oh, you're talking about the before, yeah. The shoot was scheduled for 58 days, with half of the uh, $1.5 million budget devoted to sets and music alone. The numerous rewrites cost $132,000. Garland got $2,500 per week, while O'Brien got $250 per week, and Manelli got $1,000 per week, which wasn't bad for a rookie director. Unhappy with the script, and leaning more heavily into her drug habit at this point, Garland began arriving late on set and missing days entirely. Uh, She blew off filming for a whole week, blaming it on an ear infection. Uh, Garland was especially displeased with Minnelli's insistence on frequent rehearsals, as Sylvan already pointed out. She wasn't used to people just going over every little facet and detail uh, in multiple takes before they even set action. Garland would frequently try to sneak out, and Minnelli eventually got to the point where he tasked MGM handlers with catching Garland and returning her to set before she could flee the lot. Uh, Mary Astor eventually confronted Garland in her trailer, and Garland was initially very friendly, saying, Hi, Mom, and all that stuff, and then Astor gave her an earful about being unprofessional. Astor would later apologize when she learned about Garland's declining mental health and her drug addiction. Uh, Garland did have good days, however. She nailed the trolley song in one take, for instance. As Sylvan also pointed out, Garland was also very pleased with her makeup and costuming. Minnelli insisted that Garland abandon the uh, nose plugs and dental caps that MGM forced on her, and the makeup person went along with that and struck up a good relationship with Garland. They also agreed to make her up more naturally. I did learn that uh, Margaret O'Brien had to wear dental caps for this one, but that was because she lost her two front teeth while they were making the movie. Uh, Judy Garland would occasionally remark that Meet Me in St. Louis was the first time she ever felt beautiful, and she credited that with the main reason she hooked up with Minnelli in the first place. Garland did have a fling with Tom Drake, but she soon grew attached to Minnelli. Uh, They began cohabitating before the shoot was even completed, and were married soon after the movie's release. Garland announced her engagement, not at the first premiere, Benson was at the first premiere, but at one of the subsequent ones. Yeah, unlike her first marriage, the studio was really happy about this. Uh, Minnelli was known as being a company man. He was open to collaboration and worked well at like keeping the peace with people, too. So they thought that he would have a good influence on her. Not so much. Yeah, no, they just stressed each other out. 
The Meet Me in St. Louis shoot was further delayed by extensive flooding, which destroyed a number of the exterior sets. There was a bout of pneumonia for Aster, and uh, as Sylvan already mentioned, Carol had appendicitis. Uh, Minnelli spent the forced downtime with more and more rehearsals. Even more, he always had time for that, especially with, with O'Brien. The shoot was uh, extended to 72 days, and it ballooned the movie's cost to $1.8 million. Minnelli's decision to use greeting card illustrations to introduce each season that then, like, dissolved into live action was lifted from Orson Welles' 1942 film, The Magnificent Ambersons. It's interesting to compare the two techniques because in The Magnificent Ambersons, it's supposed to have this looming, sinister, foreboding element to it. And in this, it's so cheerful. (laughs) (laughs) Disgustingly wholesome in this one. Minnelli shoots the Halloween scenes at a low angle to emphasize the children's perspectives, and uh, he deliberately cast a shadow to John's window during Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas to imply that Esther was singing to him and that she was going to leave with her family to New York no matter what. Lots of nice little technical elements of this film. It's a very well shot film. I mean, it's so beautiful. Every time I watch it, I notice a new detail. Alright, let's get to the music for this. Uh, The score for this was by Roger Edens, who was also an uncredited producer on Meet Me in St. Louis. He's one of Freed's go-to guys. Uh, And And Judy Garland's mentor for for vocals. Uh, In addition to scoring Meet Me in St. Louis, uh, he also did Easter Parade on the Town, An American in Paris, Singing in the Rain, and he contributed to Funny Face, Strike Up the Band, and the Born in the Trunk bit from The Star is Born. Many of the songs used in the film were period tunes that would have been popular around the time of the St. Louis Exposition. The title track was written specifically for the World Fair. Notable tracks include the Trolley Song, which, as uh, Sylvan pointed out, uh, arose from a misunderstanding from Freed, who was famously not very good at articulating himself to his staff songwriters. Yeah, so um, I mentioned this while we were watching the movie. He was telling them that he wanted a trolley song in the movie. So they were like, oh, okay, a song that will be performed on a trolley. And so they tried a number of different things. They wrote songs that they thought would sound good being sung by the cast while riding a trolley. Uh, They tried reworking period songs for a trolley number, and he kept saying, no, 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 I need a trolley song. And then finally they figured out, oh, he means a song about a trolley. That became a standard, uh, as did The Boy Next Door, but the big number from this is Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. It's grown so much from Meet Me in St. Louis that a lot of people don't know it's from Meet Me in St. Louis. That reminds me of a video I uh, I watched about the history of turning video game music into jazz standards, in that a lot of the people playing Bob on Battlefield were not born when Super Mario 64 came out, so to them, it's just a song that they learned to play on the saxophone. That actually goes right into jazz standard traditions. Nobody knows where any of the standards came from. Did you know that Stella by Starlight's from a horror movie? I did not. Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas was written by Hugh Martin and Ralph Blaine, although Blaine had to sue Martin decades later over songwriting credits. Martin eventually became an extreme right-wing evangelical Christian. Whee! He must have had so much fun working in musical theater. Garland objected to the downbeat melancholy of the lyrics, substituting It May Be Your Last, Next Year We May All Be Living in the Past, with Let Your Heart Be Light, Next Year All Our Troubles May Be Out of Sight. 
Yeah, so her perspective on this was the the moment where Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas is sung is she's supposed to be, in theory, consoling Tootie while she's upset about the impending move. But it the song actually drives her into her emotional outburst where she shatters the snowman family. And Garland was like, I am going to lose the audience. They will think I'm a monster if I sing these lyrics and make this little girl cry. We need to soften them. She still felt like the lyrics were a bit down and didn't really enjoy the song. And, you know, the lyrics that we hear on, like, in the mall at Christmas time are very different from the Meet Me in St. Louis ones. That can be traced to Frank Sinatra, who was friends with Judy Garland. When he was recording his Christmas album, he wanted to use the song, but still felt that it was a bit of a downer for the happy tone that he was setting for the rest of the album. So they came up with Hang a Shining star upon the highest bow. Instead of until then we'll have to muddle through somehow. I like the original uh, melancholy lyrics but that's not much of a surprise. Yeah, the Sinatra version was in 1957 and was for the album A Jolly Christmas with Frank Sinatra, so... Yeah, and Judy Garland liked the lyrics on his album better when she sang the song live. She, She did those ones like pretty much everyone else has always done. In 2001, Martin rewrote the lyrics to reflect his radical right-wing evangelical Christianity, retitling the song, Have Yourself a Blessed Little Christmas. Oh boy. So is this, this is, uh, we've recently recorded our Bluey uh, podcast, or our first Bluey podcast, There Will Be More. So this is our version of the, what what is it, the the other, the Ben Shapiro knockoff. Oh yes, Chipchilla. Yeah, (laughs) Blessed Little Christmas is the Chipchilla. Garland's version of the song reached number 27 on the pop charts in 1944. It became especially popular with World War II servicemen overseas. She allegedly brought them to tears with a USO performance once. Uh, Other charting recordings of this song include uh, Lorna Luft in 1995 with a virtual duet imitating Natalie Cole's very successful posthumous collaboration with her father on Unforgettable. Of course she did. Then we have Kaisha Cole in 2009, Michael Bublé and Christina Aguilera did versions in 2011, (coughs) Sam Smith did one in 2014, Josh Groban in 2016, Phoebe Bridgers in 2017, and John Legend did one as a duet with Esperanza Spaulding in 2018. So, fun story, I worked in a mall uh, when I was a teenager, and at the time, the radio that we played, like, in the store was a satellite station specifically for malls, and the satellite radio was a lot less, I don't know, everything than it is now back in 2003. And it wasn't manned by anyone. It was just songs on shuffle. So when the Christmas music came on, since nobody was curating it, we would get different versions of the same songs back to back to back. And I think there were more versions of Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas than any other Christmas song. I would hear like six versions of them in a row. I hated the song for a while. That might be why I like the Judy Garland lyrics so much, because at least they're different. You may have noticed that all of those charting placements I listed were very recent. This is because Billboard started to include streaming data while calculating chart placement in 2007. Among other things, this meant that Christmas songs started shooting up the ranks every December. 
That is why all I want for Christmas is you hits number one every year now. And rocking around the Christmas tree recently topped number one for the first time. Interestingly enough, Spotify Wrapped does not include December data in your Wrapped. Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas was included in a lot of things. For me, the most prominent was a 1999 South Park episode, Mr. Hankey's Christmas Classics. In that one, it was sung by Mr. Hankey, Stan, Kyle, and Cartman. Kenny joins in but gets killed by a falling chandelier mid-song. They do the Frank Sinatra version, by the way. A soundtrack album from the episode was commercially released. This marked the final South Park performance by voice actress Mary Kay Bergman, who died by self-inflicted gunshot wound less than a month before the episode first aired. Uh, the Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas segment of the episode does not directly comment on Bergman's death, but instead shows a montage of Bergman's characters, and then transitions to these characters gathering around Stan and Kyle, who are Trey Parker and Matt Stone's self-insert characters here. Parker and Stone felt that this was the best way for the crew to publicly acknowledge their grief within the confines of their deliberately rude and irreverent show, and Trey Parker's an old theater geek, so of course he loves me, Ian St. Louis. I did not have the context for this sequence as a teenager in 1999, so I felt that it was uncharacteristically sincere of South Park. Uh, so when I found out about Bergman's death later on, I was just like, oh. Yeah, same. In addition to all the songs that were used in the film, there was Boys and Girls Like You and Me, which was a leftover from Rodgers and Hammerstein's Oklahoma that was repurposed for this film. Cut for time, the footage was later lost, although a rehearsal recording of Garland singing the song still survives. Yeah, Freed also wanted to cut out the Halloween segment for the sake of time. He thought it slowed the action in the movie to a halt. Oh, it definitely does. Yeah, no, it really does. But uh, they, uh, Minnelli argued hard to keep it in, and he won. I mean, there are lots of nice bits for O'Brien in that, so I, I get it. And also, like, his vision of dividing the movie up into seasons really wouldn't work if you just took Fall right out of there. Plus, that's the part where the action, as it is, happens with, with the dad announcing that they're going to be moving. And let's talk about the cast for this. Uh, is there anything you'd like to say about Garland's performance as Esther Smith that you haven't touched upon yet? Judy Garland's real good, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, the instant I heard that voice, I was like, oh, okay. It transfixed me. She, she's got that big old voice. And I do think that her actions and reactions, and she is a much better comedic and dramatic actress than people give her credit for. People only seem to remember the singing. No, absolutely. And, like, this one was definitely a new type of movie for her. Um, she was, I feel like, treated a lot more seriously than she was in previous films, so she was able to get away from some of the overacting. Um, although I did notice in this go-through, one of the things I picked up on was watching the trolley scene more closely. You can see some of the leftovers from working with Busby Berkeley for so long. It's, it's a production number, and she's afraid to blink. He always wanted her to be, like, unblinkingly focused on the camera during production numbers so that the audience could see her eyes. And the trolley song is just three long tracking shots, so... So her fear to blink really does stand out to me there. All right, then we have Margaret O'Brien as Tootie Smith. She said that Garland was really protective of her on set and kept raising concerns about overworking the child actor. O'Brien didn't quite understand why Garland seemed so worried until much later, once she learned more about Garland's own childhood. Child labor laws have been strengthened since Garland's childhood, so O'Brien had a great time on set. She works steadily in film, TV, radio, and the stage, and she still pops up for the occasional TCM retrospective. Yes, she's still alive. She's 86. 
Yeah, no, every um, interview with her I've bumped into. She speaks very fondly of her of working on Meet Me in St. Louis and particularly always has glowing things to say about Judy Garland. Uh, said that she treated her like like they were actually sisters. She does really shine through for this. I, I get why she gets second billing even though she's the little girl because just the way she enunciates things and, you know, the, the Tootie having the morbs. It's all delivered in a way that's just adorable and funny and charming. And one thing I have to keep reminding myself when I'm watching Golden Age Hollywood movies is how obsessed people were with precocious children. Shirley Temple's whole, whole career, Mickey Rooney's early days. A lot of the things that audiences delighted in about precocious young children I actually find really grating and annoying but I like Margaret O'Brien in this I, I feel like she brings a charm to the creepy little girl character uh, then we have Mary Astor as Mrs. Anna Smith. She had a long and complex career in Hollywood. I mostly know her from the Maltese Falcon, which came out like a year or two before this. But in that one, she's like, I'm sexy and dangerous. Whereas this one, she's like, I popped out eight kids and I'm covered in ruffles. Yeah, MGM mostly used her as a mother figure. Like she had already played Judy Garland's mother in an earlier movie, thus having the nickname Mom. And uh, she played Margaret O'Brien's mother in Little Women again. So they used her in a very different capacity. Yeah, in a Warner Brothers movie, uh, she's the dame that walks in the door and she's got legs for miles. And I know she spells troubles, but I can't get away from her. (laughs) (laughs) All right, then we have Lucille Brenner as Rose Smith. She was a rockette and a nightclub dancer that caught Arthur Freed's eye. Convinced that she was a star, despite that she did a screen test for Warner Brothers that went disastrously, he put her in Meet Me in St. Louis despite having no prior acting experience. Yeah, I've read at least one book that claimed that he was fucking her and wanted to put her in a movie for that reason. No idea if that's credible, but that's definitely a rumor that popped up. I mean, that's plausible. Manelli would try to coax better line readings from Garland by comparing her negatively to Brenner, who clearly saw her part as a badly needed opportunity and was therefore both hardworking and eager to please. One of the more memorable quotes from Judy Garland about working with her that I bumped into was her referring to trying to act against Lucille Bremer as trying to act against a very pretty piece of furniture. She did not think much of her abilities. Uh, Yes, Minnelli's ploy backfired, and Garland grew to resent Brenner and tried to get MGM to fire her. Freed had to intervene. I know with her her background as a dancer, she shines more in um, the other MGM movie I've seen her in, which is Zigfield Follies, because she's dancing with Fred Astaire, and she's very good at that. Yeah, Brenner followed up Meet Me in St. Louis with plum rolls in Yolanda and the Thief, and uh, as Sylvan just said, Zigfield Follies. She got co-billing alongside Garland until the clouds rolled by, which might have pissed off Garland considerably, I imagine. I mean, her part in that movie was pretty small, but yeah, most likely. It's an ensemble film. But like, the little umbrella with uh, Brenner's name is right next to Garland's. The, The umbrella isn't higher than the other one. I remember reading that she eventually retired from acting and married a wealthy guy. Yeah, uh, Freed apparently soured on Brenner by 1947. Her uh, MGM contract was run down by loaning her to Eagle Lion for her last three pictures. Disappointed with the way this turned out, Brenner left acting and married the wealthy son of a former Mexican president. After she divorced his ass, she became business partners with Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, and later just Lucille Ball. Good for her! 
Then we have Leon Ames as Mr. Alonzo Smith. He might be one of my favorite characters in this movie. His delivery is so good. He's a fabulous straight man. Yeah, he really is. And just like the way he plays the oblivious, slightly annoyed, crotchety dad, but then he also like just rolls with it all the time too. He's like, uh, how dare you not tell me who this young man is? I'm going to cave instantly now. Uh, then we have Marjorie Maine as Katie the Maid. Uh, Essentially the same character she's played in every movie I've seen her in. Yeah, she's a character actress who played matronly domestic servants and everything. She basically plays the same character in Harvey Girls. And as I pointed out on that episode, she's best remembered as playing Ma Kettle. Oh, she's also the same character in Summerstock. Yeah, more or less everything we said about her and Harvey Girls and Summerstock applies here. She's damn good at what she does. Yeah, she's, she's here to give sassy rejoinders. Uh, then we have Harry Davenport as Grandpa. Uh, Betty Davis once called him the best character actor she ever worked with. I mean, he's also very delightful in this. Yeah, he gets a lot of good one-liners. And just like Marjorie Maine, he had a type. He usually played grandfathers, judges, family doctors, and ministers. Aside from Meet Me in St. Louis, he's best known for playing Dr. Mead in Gone with the Wind. One thing I found out about him is that he was the co-founder of the White Rats, who later changed their unpleasant name to the Actors' Equity Association, which was one of the earliest acting unions. Oh, good for him. Uh, he organized one of the first American actors' strikes, shutting down Broadway until safety regulations were broadened. Damn good for him. Yeah. Go, Grandpa. Yeah, Grandpa's a cool dude. And then, in a very random small role, the character of Lucille was played by June Lockhart. Lockhart started her career in another Christmas movie, playing Belinda Ratchet in 1938's A Christmas Carol. This is like her fourth or fifth role. She was a kid actor in 1945's Son of Lassie, before becoming the mom for 200 episodes of the TV show. She's also known for Lost in Space and Petticoat Junction. Along with O'Brien, she is one of the few actors from Golden Age Hollywood who's still around with us. Her last performance was in 2021, where she did a voice cameo in the Netflix Lost in Space reboot. She retired at 92. Yeah, I, I remember reading up on some of the actors. There was a lot of television credits where it's like shows that I've heard of but have never seen because I was born in 1986. And then quite a few of them lived to a ripe old age and stayed active all the way through. Uh, Leon Ames and um, Mary Astor, I think, are both in that camp. Tons of uh, IMDb credits. Contemporary reviews for Meet Me in St. Louis were very positive. Most of them praised the costumes, set dressing, color effects, and cinematography. They often said that Meet Me in St. Louis is one of the prettiest movies they ever saw. The story was seen as sentimental and nostalgic, but generally told in an effective manner that made things warm rather than cloying. And also pretty much what people needed at that point in the 40s. Yes, this is an incredibly nostalgic film in ways that are comparable to Summerstock and Harvey Girls, except we're shifting things to a different part of the country. Summerstock is nostalgic for old-timey New England, and Harvey Girls is about the American Southwest, so now Missouri gets a turn. And um, Minnelli said, had said about the movie, too, it's not the past as it was, but as it should have been. So it's got that touch of, like aspirational wholesomeness to it like something that you can dream about and aspire to there's a lot of soft focus in this yes there is and yet still an undercurrent of creepiness and morbidity and how fragile all of that uh domestic harmony could be 
Meet Me in St. Louis was a big, fat, stinking hit, grossing $5 million in North America and $1.5 million internationally, turning a $2.3 million profit for MGM. Freed considered it his crowning achievement. It got Oscar nominations for Best Writing, uh, Adapted Screenplay, It Lost to Going My Way. It got a nomination for Best Color Cinematography. This is back in the days where black and white and color had separate categories. It lost to Wilson. It got a nomination for Best Musical Score, lost to Cover Girl. And it got a, a Best uh, Original Song nomination for The Trolley Song, losing to Swinging on a Star from Going My Way. Uh, O'Brien did, however, get a special juvenile Oscar. So it, it, it got one Oscar. And that Oscar was stolen by a cleaning lady. I hope the cleaning lady got a good price for it. How do you fence an Oscar? <laughs> I mean, there. I guess there's a... It was very famously stolen. It must have been difficult. I guess there's an eccentric Hollywood millionaire who wanted to put it in his pool room and not tell anyone about it. Supposedly there is a an intact cut of A Star is Born that is also similarly sitting in some film collector's hidden cache of illegal movies. He also has the Gardner paintings. <laughs> uh, the American Film Institute put Meet Me in St. Louis at number 10 on its 25 greatest musicals of all time list. It is between The King and I at number 11 and An American in Paris at number 9. It's the third highest Judy Garland vehicle on the list behind A Star is Born at 7 and The Wizard of Oz at 3. Interestingly enough, Liza Minnelli's Cabaret is at number 5. The AFI list of 100 Greatest Movie Songs puts Have Yourself at A Merry Little Christmas at number 76 and The Trolley Song at 26. I would have flipped those. Trolley Song's okay, but Have Yourself at Merry Little Christmas is the showstopper. Nah, Trolley Song's a banger. Alright, Meet Me in St. Louis was added to the Library of Congress in 1994 for preservation. A television remake of Meet Me in St. Louis was produced in 1959, starring Jane Powell, Gene Crane, Patty Duke, Walter Pidgeon, Ed Wynn, Tab Hunter, and Myrna Loy. A non-musical remake was produced as a television pilot in 1966. It was not picked up. Weirdly enough, the first Broadway staging of Meet Me in St. Louis didn't happen until 1989 somehow. I know it still gets performed pretty regularly, though. Like, you, you see advertisements for it at Christmas time all the time. The movie's carousel was a genuine attraction at the Boglo Island Amusement Park in Amherstburg, Ontario. However, before you plan on doing a trip to it, uh, it was decommissioned, dismantled, and sold off to private collectors in 1993. Boo. The Smith family home fell into disrepair and was demolished in 1994. That hurts my heart. <laughs> It I know it got a lot of use, though. That was a very expensive set for them to build, so MGM milked that. Same thing with the, the street. Yeah, it's in all the cheaper by the dozen movies. Alright, and with that out of the way, that brings me to themes. I figured that Silva would be coming with me with themes, so I only wrote down one. Alright, what did you write? Is Meet Me in St. Louis a Christmas movie? <laughs> So personally, I don't really think so. Very little of the movie is set during Christmas, but it does have one of the most famous and well-loved Christmas songs of all time in it that was written for it. So I think there's an argument to be made. Plus, I know a lot of people consider this a Christmas movie. Like, I've seen it have uh, extra showings in, in theaters at Christmas time. And the dramatic climax of the film is Christmas. Oh, and it's so beautifully rendered as Christmas, just all of the, the red, the rich reds and greens, and that, that gaudy, huge, but still lovely Christmas tree in the ball scene. Love it. 
Yeah, it makes me think of comparable debates over the status of Mean Girls, because Mean Girls also takes place over the course of an entire year, or at least a school year, and it has a very prominent, famous, and oft-imitated Christmas number. That being said, the Christmas number is not the dramatic apex of Mean Girls. I would say that is the... Uh, Bus? Yeah, I guess the bus, but I think the extensive monologues in the gymnasium after the burn book is discovered would be that, but you could go either way, that's debatable. Yeah, this brings me to something I've, uh, I encountered from film critic Patrick H. Willems, who, when he breaks down the eternal debates over whether such and such is considered a true Christmas movie, the question that he asks, which I think is an effective one, is, would it feel weird to you to watch this movie in August? No, I've watched it in August. Okay, so to Sylvan, Meet Me in St. Louis is not a Christmas movie. But to many Judy Garland fans, it is. I mean, it is, this is a very subjective question. Personally, I don't think it would be weird to watch Die Hard or Gremlins in August, but for a lot of people, they watch it every December. Those are Christmas movies. Mm. What's interesting to me is that I have similar conversations with myself over Easter Parade, because Easter is in the title, and Easter does come up a couple of times in the movie, but most of it is not set during Easter. That's just, like, the day for the the goal at the end of the movie. And I know that I could theoretically watch it whenever I want. It's a great movie with awesome songs, but I still only watch it at Easter time. So there you go. The ultimate question is, it's up to you. So, uh, is there anything you'd like to talk about in terms of Meet Me in St. Louis before we sign off? Um, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on... So, I'm I'm currently reading a book on um, Vincent Minnelli focused very specifically on the his films, and it talked a little bit about auteur theory, but not much in regards to him and how he's an interesting figure to think about that with because he was such like a studio yes man and went along with what they wanted him to do. But he still has such a distinctive style that you can always see his hands in things, even when he's like finishing somebody else's work or getting a project underway. So even when he's trying to be a go with it yes man, like you can still spot him a mile away. Oh yeah, I do think that Vincent Minnelli counts as an auteur in the traditional French New Wave impressions of auteur theory, even if all of those edgelord boomer directors were trying to go as far as they can away from traditional Hollywood in the 1970s. But yes, he has a distinct touch, he has a distinct flair. As Sylvan said, you can tell it's him the instant you see him. Uh, That's why I think auteur theory is an interesting lens to look at a film, but maybe perhaps an overrated one. And as I said actually last week in the episode about the Santa Claus, I don't think auteur theory can be applied exclusively to directors. There are definitely films that are dominated by a charismatic actor or producer, and even in a few cases a screenwriter. By the standards of auteur theory, if a director is very idiosyncratic and distinctive and has a very clear vision and a through line that dots every single bit of their work, that by definition makes them a superior to director to ones who are a little more anonymous, then yeah, Vincent Vanelli is a great director, but at the same time, uh, Wes Anderson, Tim Burton, and Michael Bay are also great directors. <laughs> Which, there are people in the Criterion Collection who would make an argument... I also think with him, too, like, the fact that he was so good with collaboration and other people could be considered part of his distinctive touch because he knew how to put the right people together to get them all to buttress each other up and shine real well. 
Well, a lot of people would say that Martin Scorsese is definitely an auteur, and one of the trademarks of Martin Scorsese is that he has great working relationships with uh, Robert De Niro and Leonardo DiCaprio and Willem Dafoe and Joe Pesci and everyone else who always shows up in his stuff. So, yeah, being good at collaborating could be a distinctive flourish for, for an auteur director. Uh, that's everything I have about uh, Meet Me in St. Louis. You seem to have one more thing. I guess the other big major theme that we could talk about in the movie is nostalgia. We are touched on it a little bit, but I feel like there's more to say about it in context of this. Uh, yeah, I already mentioned that uh, Meet Me in St. Louis was almost definitely imitated by the people who put Garland and Harvey girls in Summerstock. Yeah, um, I've bumped into to, like other studios seeing its success immediately trying to get um, their own versions of it out there, but none of them hit quite the same uh, financial success as, as Meet Me in St. Louis, so imitated but never really duplicated. You know, we've talked about in prior podcasts, including The Wizard of Oz one, that there was a lot of sentimental attachment to the era before World War One because it was seen as a little less complicated and life seemed a little easier. I mean, if you were an upper middle class uh, American family at the very least, and I do think there's a rosiness to it. Uh, also, there's a, like the subplot about the moving to New York does illuminate certain things because it's casting this light on oh no we're leaving our big city but not that big of a city because our hearts are here to this cold and different horrifying New York where we're going to have to live in an ugly old loft and uh, I do think that that is playing to the people in the South who uh, they're, they're going to want to denigrate uh, other parts of America and claim that they're the real America. Like in the Summerstock episode where we talked about how uh, Summerstock treated 1890s New England like that's the real America. And I found that so jarring to me because usually I'm being painted as an out-of-touch ivory tower coastal elite. <laughs> It's interesting to think of Meet Me in St. Louis from that lens, too, because, like, immediately, well, two movies before this, Minnelli's first movie was Cabin in the Sky, which was a lower-budget, all-black cast movie. So I was talking to one of my coworkers about this earlier. When he first started on at MGM, he was known as the exotic guy, exotic in scare quotes, which basically means he could work with people of color and themes and settings that were non-white. And then when he started getting respected in his work and got the jump to bigger budget films, then he started working with all white casts again, or for the first time, rather. So, yeah, that's... I mean, if you're afraid that we were going to talk about this movie that was made in 1944 and set to 1903 without getting into any old-timey racism, then you know what? Sylvan got you under the wire. <laughs> Had to sneak it in there. So yeah, I was reflecting about that a little bit today, and I definitely want to read up more on race in Hollywood, period, because I, I know very little about black actors from this time period comparatively. It's harder to get my hands on those movies. Like, I want to see Lena Horne and stuff, but it's just, yeah, no, it's not as readily available. Yeah, there are other sources on uh, black erasure in old-timey Hollywood, but uh, that might be uh, more suited to a different episode. Uh, one thing I definitely noticed is that they make a big to-do about the World's Fair, and Sylvan and I were born decades after the World's Fair stopped mattering. So that in alone dates the film, if, if not the period dress and everything else. Yep. Like, so much optimism during the time where fascism was about to tear the world apart. We It was simpler then, wasn't it? 
Not really, but once again, Adam... Well, also, too, this movie is from the perspective largely of children. And Minnelli did say that this wasn't the world as it was, but as it should have been. I think it did a real good job, too, of capturing, like, all of the bloated emotions of childhood, the way they they make problems out of very, like, small day-to-day items. Well, I mean, moving to a big city is a big stressor, but still, yes, everyone is having grandiose gestures of utter mirth or melancholy. There's no in-between. Yep, it's like uh, to throw in some gentle parenting. That's a big feeling you're having right now. Do you want to talk about your big feelings? And, uh, yeah, that might also lend to the film's dreamlike quality, because often when you dream, emotions are just way more intense. Well, that's all I've got. All right, well, thanks for listening, everybody. Join us next time.